Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. So another episode of the Westminster Kennel Club annual dog show has come and gone, and every year I get a little frustrated knowing that this is going on and knowing how hard so many people are working to end euthanasia of unwanted dogs and cats around the world. And yes, I believe that there's a connection between dog breeding, the American Kennel Club, and unwanted dogs in the United States. I'd like to welcome Elizabeth Oreck, National Manager of Puppy Mill Initiatives for Best Friends Animal Society, to discuss intentional breeding of dogs and its relationship to overpopulation and euthanasia. Welcome to the program, Elizabeth. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Elizabeth, every year when the show is televised, I, I just cringe because I just do not agree with the promotion of purebred dogs over mixed breeds, nor the creation of more dogs when we kill so many in our shelters. Elizabeth, I wanted to begin by asking you about a specific aspect of the show, and that is what happens to the popularity of the breeds that win the show? Do we see more of the winning breed in the market after a show? Yes, that's exactly right. So for us, the concern is not so much with the dog shows themselves, but the effects that those dog shows have on the public and on the retail pet trade. And the fact that, as you just said, they do create this surge of demand for specific breeds of dogs, particularly the winning dogs. So people will rush out after the dog show to buy that breed of dog from a pet store or online or Craigslist or what have you. And the problem is that that type of dog may not be well suited to that person or family or home environment. And on top of that, aside from what you just said, which is that there's already such a surplus of dogs, wonderful, amazing, healthy dogs of all breeds and ages and sizes and temperaments just looking for homes in our shelters. But also that that, in this case, it was the Beagle, right, that won the Westminster Best in Show. And that particular Beagle that won that prize was raised very differently than the beagles that you find available for sale in pet stores or online or on Craigslist or any of those sources. And so there's this unfortunate misperception that if someone purchases a purebred beagle from one of those pet retailers or online, that it's going to be of the same quality and that it was raised as responsibly and humanely as that Westminster beagle was. And that's just unfortunately not realistic. How does it work, Elizabeth? Do the breeders just go into high gear and start breeding, or do they take orders from potential customers? Well, I think it depends which breeders you're, you're referring to. Now, there are certainly caring, responsible breeders who are not very different from the puppy mills and the backyard breeders. These are the breeders who are doing it right. They're not doing it for profit. And so those are breeders who will not breed until they have met the potential purchaser and they have a contract with them and they insist on spaying and neutering them and they'll make sure that that dog can always come back to that breeder if something goes wrong over the lifetime of the dog. But then there are the the disreputable breeders who will, like you said, just start churning out those puppies knowing that there's going to be a market for them. It's like when Obama got the Portuguese water dog. All of a sudden, everybody wanted a Portuguese water dog. And so the breeders started 
basically um, creating the, su- the supply for what they knew was going to be a high demand. Also, research from Hal Herzog's group shows that movies featuring dogs can increase the numbers of dogs of that breed registered by the AKC for years after the film comes out, like we saw after 101 Dalmatians in 1996. Exactly. Exactly. And a big surge of the intake into shelters of those dogs. And so there's not just a problem with the overproduction of the dogs to meet the surge of demand. There's also the problem of where those dogs end up when they end up not being a good fit or when they end up not, you know, they end up being impulse buys and then people have second thoughts later or in the case of 101 Dalmatians, people were buying entire litters for their kids so that their kids could experience the, you know, the joy of having lots of Dalmatian puppies running around. Well, that's a big reality check when those dogs grow into, when those puppies grow into dogs and then what happens? They end up in the shelters. So it becomes all of our problems because those animals are being housed and killed in the shelters at the you know, 9000 a day at taxpayer expense. The joys of, of witnessing the birth. That's a, a common thing we hear. Elizabeth, so that's one element, what we just talked about, of my criticism with the shows and with featuring and promoting specific breeds. But I want to hear your opinion on the idea I presented earlier that breeding in general, breeding in general, whether responsible breeders or non-responsible breeders, contributes to the dog overpopulation problem in the United States. Well, of course it does. Of course it does. When we are seeing 9,000 dogs and cats being killed in our shelters every day, so thousands of dogs every day being killed simply because there aren't enough people adopting them. And meanwhile, there are high-volume commercial breeders churning out 2 million puppies a year for the pet trade. That's an economic equation that is very difficult to wrap your head around because it sort of begs the question, why do we continue as a society to mass produce a product for which there's already such a surplus that we're having to kill so many every day? And the answer, of course, is profit. But it really doesn't make sense. And it, with any other product, you know, and I'm referring to, to these puppies as product, right. um, because that's really what they are to so many people who are profiting uh, from the breeding and the sale of these exactly. puppies. You know, it's, it's, a, it's not an equation that you find normally in, in you know, the marketplace, in, in basic economics. You don't overproduce what you can't sell. And if you're killing a lot of healthy loving, wonderful animals in shelters every day, that's, you know, that is the surplus that um, unfortunately is being compromised by this. Talk a little bit about the American Kennel Club, which is responsible for breed standards and basically promoting the value and status of purebred dogs over mixed breeds. What is their role in dog overpopulation? You know, it's really interesting. So the, the AKC has been around for a long time, right? They were established in 1886 to promote breed lineage, and that's still pretty much what they're known for. They're the good housekeeping seal of dog breeding. And, you know, they do some good work. They have some good programs, but they really are a big part of as you said, the overpopulation problem, the shelter overpopulation problem, but also the puppy mill problem. Um, They're a big participant in the profit 
uh, and sale of, of these puppies. And that's ultimately, like so many things, uh, a matter of just profit. You know, every time a puppy is registered with the AKC, no matter where or how it was bred, the AKC makes money. And so you can see why they would be inclined to oppose legislation, as they do regularly, um, that might result in fewer breeders and fewer dogs, whether it's spay and neuter legislation or stricter breeding regulations. Fewer dogs equals fewer registrations, which equals fewer registration fees. And so it really comes down to bottom line. And what's more, if they stopped registering those puppies, it would be really difficult for pet stores to be able to justify charging $2,000 or $2,500 for a puppy that's comparable to a puppy available in a shelter for $70. Those papers, those AKC papers, give this perceived value. And, you know, it's like a logo. It's like a designer logo. It's a mark of distinction that, that comes with a high price tag. But those papers really don't mean anything. They have no practical value. They are really just paper. We wish that everyone would choose to adopt rather than purchase a companion animal when they're looking to bring a new one into the home. Um, it, again, it just doesn't make sense to keep producing animals when so many are being killed for no other reason than there just aren't enough people adopting them. We really hope that people will choose to adopt first and foremost. And I think we're getting there as a society. I think we are definitely on the right track. I think the culture has changed. People are starting to accept adoption as, as the first choice. They're starting to understand that killing does happen in our shelters, that the word shelter is an unfortunate misnomer that not everybody um, used to understand meant, you know, animals died. And so I think we're definitely moving in the right direction. Don't go away. More with Elizabeth Oreck. We're talking about the intentional breeding of dogs and the AKC and its relationship to overpopulation and euthanasia in our shelters. You're listening to Animals Today. For the past quarter century, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. Its programs include reducing income taxes by allowing a deduction for spay and neuter expenses, preventing animals adopted from shelters from reproducing, and requiring the mandatory identification of dogs and cats to prevent dumping the unwanted. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.org. Welcome back to the program. We're speaking with Elizabeth Oreck. Elizabeth, you mentioned Best Friends encourages adoption over buying from an individual breeder, and you state that some people just don't want to adopt. Isn't there a role for rescue groups in there? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, I mean, one of the things that we try and make um, very evident to people who are not as familiar with rescue and adoption is that there are breed-specific rescue groups for every single breed of dog. So for those people that think they can't find what they're looking for in a shelter or with a regular rescue group that, that works with all breeds of dogs, 
and they think that they have to go to a pet store, they have to go online to buy that particular type of dog, that there are, in fact, breed-specific groups who can accommodate any need. Anybody who's looking for any breed of dog can find what they're looking for with a rescue group, in a shelter, on PetFinder.com, any of those sources of adoptable dogs, um, they don't have to go to a pet store or go online. There's a phrase I think is deceptive, and that is responsible breeder. I know you used that term before, and it's, I think it's deceptive because whether you're, whether you're responsible or not responsible, you're still contributing to the overpopulation problem that exists in our country. Is Best Friends okay with certain dog breeders? Does Best Friends use the term responsible breeding? Well, we use that term to differentiate between puppy mills and backyard breeders. So whether or not we support breeding as a practice, we absolutely recognize that there are some people who are doing it better than others, and that these are the things that people who are not ready or willing to adopt an animal, who are determined to buy an animal, need to know so that they do not unwittingly support the worst of the breeding practices that go on. So, you know, some of the differences are very obvious. Um, Responsible hobby breeders tend to spay and neuter, have a small number of dogs, only breed once a year, usually breed only one breed of dogs. Most importantly, will not sell to a third party like a pet store or sell online. It would be really naive and irresponsible of us as an organization to not acknowledge the difference between those kinds of breeders and the puppy mills and the backyard breeders because as much as we can wish everybody would choose to adopt and not buy their next pet, the reality is there are a lot of people who who just haven't gotten there yet and we need to keep working on them. And in the meanwhile, we need to steer them in a better direction and take them down a better path so that they're not keeping the cruelty of the puppy mill industry going while we're trying to educate them into adoption as as the number one choice. And I understand, and I do acknowledge the difference as you explain it. I just think that term is an oxymoron, whether you're responsible or not. Like I said, it just contributes to the, the, the problem that exists in our country with dog and cat overpopulation. Elizabeth, Best Friends has a puppy mill initiative. What does that consist of? That consists of really a multi-pronged strategy to try and address the cruelty of puppy mills. Because as you know, puppy mills are an unfortunate legal industry. And so we can't just shut them all down as much as we would like to. Ultimately, the puppy mill problem, the puppy mill solution is in the public's hands. Puppy mills are only producing those puppies because people are buying them. And if people stop buying them, there would be no reason to produce them, and they would eventually all go away. And so we have to attack this problem from a a number of different angles, which includes educating the public and encouraging adoption so that they don't continue to keep the industry going through their consumer choices, and advocating for better laws, in some case writing laws, that address breeding regulation, requiring inspections, improving on the animal care standards that breeders have to comply with. Um, We're focusing very, very closely on getting ordinances enacted to actually prohibit pet stores from selling dogs and cats, and sometimes rabbits, unless they come from shelters or rescue groups, and trying to prohibit roadside animal sales. You know, all the things that contribute to the profit 
of the puppy mill industry. And so slowly but surely, we are shrinking down the number of puppy mills. We are increasing the number of um, animals that are getting adopted out of shelters and rescue groups. So we're really, we're making so much progress. And there are so many animal welfare organizations and rescue groups and committed individuals and concerned citizens who are contributing to that progress. And it's really encouraging because I think we are seeing this industry die out. Yeah. We're just trying to expedite and facilitate the process so that we can get to that time when we won't be mass producing dogs for an oversaturated market and people will start to adopt more um, more than they already are and we will start to see the shelters empty out and maybe we really can become a no-kill nation. I think we can. I think we're, we're on track to getting there. There's some recent ordinances that have passed in pet stores where they can't sell. They're not allowed to sell puppy mill puppies and they have to come from rescue groups or shelters or humane societies. That's right. That's right. Communities throughout North America that cities, towns, counties have enacted ordinances prohibiting these pet stores from selling milled animals. They can only offer rescued pets for adoption, which is so great because there's a lot of people, even the people who do want to adopt, who just can't bring themselves to step foot in a shelter. You know, they're, they're afraid it's going to be depressing and sad and noisy and loud and all those things. And, and so by allowing pet stores to have rescued animals available for adoption in their stores, it's really increasing the opportunities for those pets to find homes. And at the same time, it's not increasing the amount of animals being imported into the community from these high-volume commercial facilities in other states. And, you know, it helps relieve the burden on the shelters by getting animals out of those facilities and into retail pet stores where they have a better chance of being adopted. So it's really a win-win for um, for the, the pets and the community and the adopters, and that's why we have such incredible momentum right now. And so many communities have, have enacted these ordinances, and now even states are starting to in- introduce state bills to ban pet stores from selling dogs and cats. So it's it's really encouraging. We're he- we're heading in a great direction, Elizabeth Ork. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be here. listening to animal as temperatures climb please remember never to leave your dog in the car even for just a minute because even with the windows cracked and your car parked in the shade the temperature inside can climb up in a matter of minutes high enough to kill your pet if you love your dog leave them at home and if you see a dog or other pet in a car you may only have a minute to save their life here are a couple steps you can take make an announcement in the store or business that the car is parked nearest to also call the police department or animal control right away remember it only takes a minute or two for a dog to get seriously ill or die in a car on a warm day so swift action can save a life dogs are unable to cool themselves the way people can so never leave a dog or any animal inside a car on a warm day not even for a minute this message is brought to you by advancing the interests of animals check them out at aianimals.org that's aianimals.org
Welcome back to the show. I want to welcome back Dr. Doug Coons, Medical Director of VCA Desert Animal Hospital in Palm Springs, California. Hey, Doug. Hi, Laurie. How are you? I'm great. Doug, we recently spoke about allergy in dogs, which is very common, I learned. And I wanted to turn our attention now to cats and their allergies. How common are allergies in cats? And do you see many patients in your office for that? You know, many fewer than than with dogs. Allergy is a much bigger problem in dogs than it is in cats. Some of the same mechanisms are in operation. Again, the release of histamine evoked by whatever the cat might be allergic to, just as in the dog. But the symptoms and presentation are often quite different. So what are the main causes of allergy in cats, and how would you contrast that to dogs? Much more common to see food allergy in the cat than in the dog. And the manifestation in the cat is usually with itchy itchiness around the head and often with sores on the head and around the ears. Hmm. How do you approach in the office a cat or kitten with possible allergy? You know, again, we look for the things that are easy to eliminate. Sometimes fleas can cause allergic reaction in a cat. And so, again, we ruffle a fur above the tail head and we look for flea dirt, which is the stool from the flea, which are a little black, a little black debris that we would see there. And... Or we may see the fleas and turn the cat over and look underneath, too. Often in that inguinal area between the back legs, we'll see fleas or the flea dirt. And that one's the easy one to eliminate because we can give a flea medication and eliminate the fleas, and and then we eliminate the flea allergy. Right. More commonly, though, we'll see that cat with the sores on their face and really itchy. And with the cats, we kind of jump to thinking food allergy, and then we go for the elimination diet. And cats can be a little challenging here. I used to uh, have my clients go to one of the grocery stores that had a a really good butcher department so that they could order uh, rabbit, and then I would have them do home cooking uh, with rabbit meat uh, for the cat. And and we would see these cats totally clear up in 30 to 60 days. Wow. Uh, but then the challenge is, is to find a balanced diet that will maintain it. And like in the dog, we talked about the hydrolyzed protein diets last week. Uh, these are diets where the protein has been clipped so that instead of being long chains of amino acids, they're very short chains of amino acids that the cat's body doesn't recognize as coming from whatever the source was that has been hydrolyzed. Probably the most difficult part would be the cats are so finicky. Yes. Now that's the other side of the equation. Although the diet that we use, uh, mainly it's a Royal Canaan diet that uh, is hydrolyzed protein. It's actually, this sounds pretty weird, but it's actually made from chicken feathers. And of course, the cuticle in the feather is protein. And by taking that protein and clipping it down to unrecognizable bits uh, and then formulating it into a diet, we're pretty successful getting the cats to eat that diet. Not 100%, but 
but we probably, I'd say, 80 to 90 percent successful. And then we feed that for a month's time and then come back, or a couple of months' time, and then we come back and, and do a challenge diet. And lots of times that cat will have one meal of the original diet, and all of a sudden we'll have these lesions back on the head. And then, then absolutely we've nailed the diagnosis. And the challenge may sound like it's a little cruel, but it really helps us to know for sure that that's a food allergy. And then we embark on trying to find a unique protein. Again, uh, duck is one we go to very often with with cats. Uh, sometimes there are some, sea, some fish diets that will work, but a lot of cats have been introduced to fish diets uh, early in life, and so those are, are not successful. Doug, when we spoke about allergy in dogs, food allergy in dogs specifically, you mentioned that sometimes your patient's guardians make a home-cooked meal of beans and vegetables. That's You cannot do that. I just want to stress we can't do that in cats, right, because yeah, they need their meat protein, correct? Yes. Cats are true carnivores. Right. And so uh, trying to feed them home-cooked diet, particularly a vegetarian source home-cooked diet, we can cause heart problems in cats. And so it's really not a good idea yeah. to home-cook for your cat and unless you've really worked with uh, your veterinarian or with an animal nutritionist in formulating a diet. Doug, one of our cats sneezes a lot. Is that indicative of environmental allergy? Certainly could be. Sneezing is not an unusual symptom in a cat. It also can be some other things. Uh, we see cats sometimes with chronic herpes virus that can have some chronic sneezing problems, and not really that it's causing any symptoms of illness, just a lot of sneezing. Doug, talk about some medicine treatments for cat and allergy. You know, uh, that's... A good point. Cats are very lucky in that of all the animals we treat, cats are the least susceptible to developing side effects from treating with cortisone. So if we see a cat come that comes in and he has those facial sores or is really itchy, we'll often give a shot of Depomedrol, which is a long-acting corticosteroid, and that will give the cats almost immediate relief. And then we can work on getting a diagnosis over time, but it, but it gives them relief. Long-term, uh, again, antihistamines are, uh, don't work well in the cat. We try them often, but, but they don't work well. Uh, the corticosteroids are our, probably our best treatment in cats, but again, we have to be a little cognizant of side effects because if, say, we were to give the, a shot of Depomedrol, a long-acting corticosteroid monthly, over time, there is a chance that we can cause that cat to become diabetic. So we often will look then toward giving an oral corticosteroid like prednisolone on an every other day basis and that that works quite well cats cats need prednisolone versus prednisone which we might use in a dog because cats don't convert well don't convert it to the usable product in the liver very well so again they're we have to treat them a little differently than a dog. But an every other day dose of corticosteroid works well or the cyclosporin works well in cats. And they seem to tolerate those 
very well if we if we keep them to the least amount that will control the allergy. Unfortunately, the monoclonal antibodies that we talked about last week the, to treat dogs mm-hmm. are canine-specific, so we don't have those yet for, uh, for cats. We, we will hopefully eventually, but uh, at this point, uh, the steroids and cyclosporin are our best long-term treatments for allergy in the cat, other than, you know, food allergy, which we really always try to uh, find a diet that doesn't uh, cause the allergy. Veterinarian Dr. Doug Coons, thank you very much for coming on the show again. Thanks, Lori. Welcome back to Animals Today. Well, I want to say hello to our special guests, uh, musician and animal advocate Paul Rogers and his wife, Cynthia Kerluck. Uh, You know Paul from his work, Fronting Free, Bad Company, The Firm, and as a solo artist. And he has written, recorded, produced, and released 30 albums. He sold 125 million records. You know the story. His latest CD and DVD is titled Free Spirit, filmed and recorded live at Royal Albert Hall. Welcome, Paul and Cynthia. Hello. How are you? Thanks, Peter. (laughs) Well, I'll just address this to both of you. Please tell me how and when did you become interested in the welfare of animals? Well, this is Paul speaking here. You know, um, my wife, Cynthia, is a great animal lover. When we were in Dubai, she made friends with camels. In Memphis, she rescued dogs and puppies. In Japan, it was kittens. And in Portugal, I, th- I believe it was a swallow. Is that a swallow? A swift bird. Oh, a swift. Yeah, a swift. Yeah. Um, and there's been, uh, you know, every one of those um, adventures is a story within itself. I mean, not to mention Willow, the um, animal sanctuary in Aberdeen, Scotland. So, um, yeah. So we visited Aspen um, Wildlife Center recently in the Muskokas, and the first animal I saw was an Arctic fox named Spirit, which, considering I've just come off my Free Spirit North American tour with Jeff Beck and Ann Wilson and Deborah Bonham, was very... Kismet, kismet. Kismetic, is there such a word? <laughs> yes. Kismetic. And uh, it was quite amazing. So I think that, you know, the angels are, perhaps the angels are watching over us. I think too, Peter, I know both Paul and I grew up, um, you know, with animals in our homes. We always had animals. And then um, Paul through, you know, his when his children were all young, they always had, you know, dogs you know, in, in the home. So there's always been pet, someone to care for, or someone to watch over and, and love. And I mean, from the time I was a little girl, I remember how I didn't have any pets and I really, really wanted pets badly. So what I would do is we had a veranda that had a little secret entrance underneath the front porch. So I'd go around the neighborhood and I'd gather up all the animals and I'd carry them back home. I was about five years old and I'd put them all underneath there and try to make them jump through hoops and stuff like that, and then I'd hear all these people in the neighborhood, Fifi, Fifi, Roxy, all these people calling for their pets, and I had dogs and cats all together underneath our veranda, (laughs) 
I guess I was an animal thief. I don't know. Mm. But then as I got older and was able to, you know, have my own pets, you know, through childhood I had pets, but then as an adult too. And I guess we're failed fosters because we fostered a number of animals, doing a number of rescues from Mexico as well. And um, just fell in love with the animals. There's a soul connection. The, the reason we're failed is because they <laughs> tend to stay. Yes. Uh, you know, they're supposed to be fostered and they stay. Yeah. 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 Our listeners are very familiar with that. And uh, just yeah. so, just to make sure we touch upon this again, uh, you guys formally uh, support Aspen Wildlife Sanctuary. This is in Ontario, Canada. It's about three hours drive north of Toronto, if I'm correct. And also, you mentioned Willow's Animal Sanctuary, another great place in uh, Scotland. It's really uh, sweet what you guys do to bring attention and donations to both of these and others. Well, you know what, Peter? It's, it was really interesting because with um, Willow's, we've been patrons for about six years. And they're in a very remote area of Scotland, and there isn't a lot economically going on in the area anymore. So it's really hard for them to to get funding. So we support them heavily. And something we've just started doing is we do these online auctions. I know that we were going through Paul's home in the U.K., his cottage, and had a lot of, you know, neat little things that he'd had for 40, 50 years. And so I was packing them up, getting ready to take them to a charity shop. And I thought, wait a second, wait a second. Your fans would probably really like to have a piece of yeah. of your history, your home history. Would you mind if we did an online auction with some of these items? And he said no. So we did that, and now we're about to do another. I think next week we're going to kick off another one online. So um, I can send you that information. Yeah, we'll post and it. M- these are more autographed items that I've I've gathered up. Uh, Robert Plant signed an album for us. Uh, I think we have something from Brian Johnson from. Paul, of course. So just a bunch of, you know, music friends have signed items, so those will be on an auction. And then as for Aspen, we've been with them, supporting them for about four years, and they do great work with the wildlife here in Canada. And, I mean, Paul can tell you the story of, you know, meeting Ella the Moose, who is a a resident there now, and um, that was quite an encounter, wasn't it? Well, it was, actually. She's kept in in an enclosure an acre. And, an acre. Yeah. It's a big, large fence around it and everything. And um, she, um, um, Howard, the, the chap that works there, then, that he actually talked to the animals and he went into the enclosure <laughs> and he, he sort of made this sound like, ooh, 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 yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. like that. And we were thinking, oh, I wonder what's going to happen here. <laughs> Howard's lost it. <laughs> and then there was an answering call of a similar nature, like, yeah. ooh, ooh, ooh. And, and, and the bushes parted, and out came <laughs> this amazing, monstrous, prehistoric creature, it looked like, you know. Yeah. And she was, it was Ella the Moose, and she's just a baby, actually, but she she's is. quite big, yeah. Yeah. you know, by our standards. She's like six foot tall. At least. And uh, she came up to the fence, and... Um, Howard said, feed her this banana. So she took the banana through the fence. And she doesn't, apparently they don't have bottom teeth. Uh, they they tear with the top teeth and then they chow, you know, leaves and, and foliage and stuff like that. So that's how she took the banana. She looked into my eyes and she was saying, like, keep hold of the banana. I want to tear at it, right? <laughs> and she was tearing away at the banana. It was a wonderful experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. She's very habituated. She actually um, was found as an orphan. Generally what happens is moose have um, uh, twins or triplets. And Howard, who's a biologist who runs Aspen um, Valley Wildlife Sanctuary, he said that what 
typically happens is the moose, if she has twins, will take two and leave one. So Ella got left. And the family found her, and they took her in, and they were trying to bottle feed her, but they hadn't given her quite enough protein, so she was jumping around one day and broke her front leg. So they called Aspen and said, we've got this situation. So Aspen came and took her. She was in a cast for nine months, and while she was casted for nine months, she ended up damaging one of her back rear legs. So she can never fend for herself in the wild, so she's a resident now at at Aspen. Mm -hmm. And you can go up and visit all the animals. I mean, we saw bears, we saw uh, silver foxes, we saw coyotes, raccoons. They have absolutely, they, they, they don't turn anything away. Which is so, so clearly you guys are very connected to this world. I wonder if, uh, Paul, whether you derive any inspiration in your musical creativity from wild animals or the plight of animals. Well, I think the spirit of the animals. We, we've. Well, I mentioned to you earlier before we came on, uh, before we went on air, uh, we had a dog Saxon. He was a rescue, and I mean, his. Uh, he, he was such a great friend. It was like he was really a person to us, you know. And it was very, very sad to lose him. But he was. When we rescued him, they. He was in very poor shape. His his fleece. His. Um, his coat really was was all scratched and you know he'd irritated. had surgery to remove those yeah. yeah and nobody wanted him basically yeah he, he looked a mess and uh he was at the spca yeah they, they didn't even charge us for him that's how bad he was they said no <laughs> we won't charge yeah, you give him a home and they said he'll probably last what a year a or year something. well he was yeah. with us for six Seven years. years. Seven years. A total of 14. He was a Doberman, 95-pound yeah. Doberman, and he yeah. lived till 14. I know. He was yeah. just—he was so intelligent. Yeah. And you get a lot of inspiration from, from, from his love. of His joy was to go for a walk, you know. I mean, he'd, he'd look you in the eye, and, and he'd, he'd, a little sparkle in his eye, let's go, you know. And, and that's an inspiration for anybody. I, 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 yeah, it definitely. Mm-hmm. Do you find any uh, similarities working closely with uh, animals and uh, what you get on stage or as a professional musician? Is there anything else that these endeavors share for you? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, you know, yeah, there's. it's all about energy when you're on stage. I mean, it's all about energy. It's all about show. It's all about communication. And um, I think, you know, animals have a, a really lovely energy. They, they say that a dog is like a five-year-old, in, a five-year-old child in terms of where it's grown up, I do believe. You know, and, and they're very loving and very open and giving and responsive. Um, so, yeah, I mean, in, in that sense, in the, in the sense of energy, and I, mean, I keep saying spirit, but again, it comes back to that. You know, the spirit of the animal really is an inspiration for anything you might do, I think. And I'll just uh, throw this out to both of you, uh, Cynthia and Paul. Are you optimistic or more pessimistic about the future, what the future holds for animals in the wild? You know, some of us in the fields, we're really down and we're ruining the earth and others are like, oh, technology and everything is going to, we're going to be in a better place soon. You guys ever talk about that kind of stuff? I do think about it a lot, and you know, and and when you look around, you can get. It's very easy to get depressed because some of the things that that are done to animals. I I, I know that you know we hunt animals and we eat animals, and we've done this. Mankind has done this since time began, basically, and it's part of our nature. But I don't see any reason why we have to be cruel 
to them, actually. I, I don't like cruelty. I really dislike cruelty altogether because it's just unnecessary. And uh, that's, that's my big bugbear. Yeah. I, I, I think I, I'm sort of, you know, I'm, I'm right in the middle. I mean, I think that we have to allow for animals and allow for human-animal-wildlife, you know, conflict and be able to support them through it, whether it's rehabilitation and re-release or whether it's taking care of them, you know, building a one-acre enclosure for a moose that can't be rehabilitated and released. I think we have to be more responsible citizens, and we have to realize that we're sharing, and sharing is caring. So, to quote my grandchildren, <laughs> yeah. um, I really think we need to be aware of our choices that it's and not be so so greedy. I think we're, we've become very greedy as we a, as, a, as a nation uh, as in a, North America, human, humankind. Yeah. yeah, I do. I do think as well that. Um, you can only do what you can do. Do that which is in, right in mm -hmm. front of you. If you see cruelty or if you see something that you can do to alleviate any kind of suffering from an animal, then do that. That's, that's, yeah. If everybody did that, I think it would be a better world. And I think, too, in terms of animal testing, I don't think it's necessary. I don't, don't think we should be using chemical compounds in our systems, whether it's topically or orally. I don't think we should have um, chemical testing. On animals, I agree. on eagles, I think it's terrible. Yeah, you know, I think it's absolutely terrible. That's and, a lot of suffering. Yeah, isn't yeah. It? and I think it's totally unnecessary. Well, Cynthia and Paul, it's just been a joy speaking with both of you. I'm sorry it had to be so brief, but we certainly uh, learned a lot about your world as animal advocates, and I uh, really appreciate you coming on to Animals Today. Oh, thanks, Peter. Thanks, Peter. That was great. <laughs> Some results about our relationships we have with our dogs. This is according to the 2018 Pets and People survey by Just Right by Perina. Among the key and not so surprising findings, 95% view their dog as part of their family. 62% said their dog helps them de-stress after a long day at work. And 55% believe their dog provides emotional comfort after receiving bad news. Other interesting results... Half of all women surveyed said they preferred time with their dog over time with their partner and or other family members. You bet. And the survey also found dogs have helped 15% of men gain the attention of the opposite sex. Mm. Peter, you find it hard to believe that 50% of women surveyed would rather be with their dog over their partner? No, I'm not surprised by that. No, me neither. Just before Labor Day, over a thousand dolphins were observed jumping and swimming together in California's Monterey Bay. And what they were doing was working together to corral billions of fish for food. A video was taken and you can see it on YouTube. And apparently this is not uncommon and happens every year. But to actually see the video is pretty cool. Yes, I saw that video also. And it's just amazing how many dolphins there are. Okay, here's a scary news item. Nicknamed Bertha, a rogue 18-foot Indian python is somewhere loose in Poland. Animal Rescue Poland received reports on July 7th of shed snakeskin found near the Vistula River south of Warsaw that measured nearly seven feet. 
When this group investigated the high grass close to the river, they found a second piece of molted skin measuring about 16 feet, <laughs> suggesting that the snake could be as long as 20 feet. Yeah, Lori, I saw this story, and no one knows how the snake got there. It's certainly too cold in Poland for a snake like that to live year-round, so maybe it's someone's escaped pet, but it's so huge, it just makes you wonder. Peter, we must have about at least two or three nicknames for our animals. I'm sure a lot of people do. But Nationalwide Pet Insurance came up with a list of their top 10 wacky dog names of 2018. These are real names of people's dogs. Chauncey Von Poopsalot. Yeah. Franklin Woofsevelt. Isabella Miss Worldwide Boo Boo. Little Bunny Foo Foo. Lord Stanley the Pup. Madam Squishy Van Wrinkleface. Ruffy the Vampire Slayer, Sir Licks a lot, Sylvester Stud Puddin' Pop, Vladimir Putin. Oh, that's probably my favorite. You want to hear the top 10 wacky cat names okay. of 2018? Lay it on me. Banana Paws, Bobcat the Builder, Colonel Puff Puff, Edward Scissor Paws. Yeah, that's a good one. Majestic Coon's Carefree Dior Blue Knight, Mupocalypse Yarn Killer, Pablo Percasso. Percasso, that's cute. Princess Can Swallow Banana Hammock, Sir Pounce A Lot, Sir Reginald Fluffy Butt. Okay, I like those. I think Edward Scissorpaws, I can relate to that the most. Lori, did you see the story about that cute little penguin and the guy in South America? Yes, that was adorable. Okay, so there's this uh, man, elderly man. He's a retired bricklayer in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. And he rescued and saved this little, cute little penguin who had oil all over him or her. I'm not sure the gender of this little penguin. Anyway, he saved this penguin who was languishing on the rocks in 2011, nursed the penguin back to health, fed the penguin fish, and then the penguin ultimately uh, left. But eight months later, came back and has been uh, doing so since 2011. This penguin goes down, presumably uh, down to the coast of Argentina or Chile, and uh, swims the round trip is 5,000 miles, comes back every year, spends the rest of the time with the man, and they hang out. And they, the uh, naturalists think the penguin thinks the man is, is indeed a penguin. And they snuggle together, and he's feeding it. No one else is allowed near the penguin. The penguin will peck at other people. He sees the man, and he just honks and wags his tail like a little dog with just delight. It's really cute. Every year he does the same thing? Every year since 2011. That's adorable. Yeah. Laura, you know, another source of conflict in the neighborhood is dog waste, dog poop on people's lawns. Yes. Uh, it's appropriate that the company Lawn Starter wanted to research this, and they surveyed more than 700 homeowners in five U.S. metro areas to uh, try to see about the top complaints that they have about their neighbors. And 9% named pets, mostly dogs as their biggest uh, complaint by their neighbors. Nine percent? Nine. I would think it would be more. Me too. But uh, still, uh, they are objecting to uh, people using their precious lawns as a little uh, potty station. Even if the people pick up after their animals? You know what? They sort of don't really care. They just uh, don't want people to... What do you think about that? Do you think that's okay? Forget about the 700 people. What do you think? If I mean, the, your dog... Our dogs don't really want to squat on the asphalt, right? They need to get ready to be on the lawn. So, okay, we've got a neighbor's lawn. We've got our bags. We pick it up within a millisecond after it coming out. Is that okay? 
I think that's fine. I mean, what are you supposed to do when, when your dog wants to pee or poop on someone's lawn? You're supposed to drag them into the middle of the street? Well, I think some neighbors would like that. They would like you to have no dog or keep your, I don't know what they want. No dogs. They don't want their blade of grass stained at all. You know, I do think we have a neighbor who objects to that very thing. Anyway, you mean the, the neighbor with the huge signs up that say, no poop, don't have your dogs poop on our lawn? We have that. Remember the elderly woman who put the sign? It was only for a brief time, and I was didn't have the foresight to take a picture of it when it was up, but she put a sign on her lawn that said poison on her lawn. Yeah. That can't be legal. That cannot be legal. Anyway, no, I think the biggest... So now object- that's our main destination. Yeah, that's right. We encourage the dogs to go yes. to... Oh, that's a beautiful looking lawn over there. I think the main objection people have is when dogs urinate on yeah. their lawn, okay. then it leaves the smell and then it, other dogs want to follow. So then it leaves that, a, right. a spot and right. they don't like that. And that spot, I've tried to make that spot go away faster with fertilizer or water or seeds. It just has to go through its life cycle. It's going to be brown for seven to 10 days, no matter what you do. And I will tell you that another element of the survey reported that more than 4 million tons of dog poop each year are not picked up. It's just getting incorporated into the world. So that's a lot of stuff there. But going back to the urine thing that you mentioned earlier, definitely we've got the smell of someone's urine on our bush right at the, right at the end of our driveway. Right. And so- our dog walking out our very own driveway wants to mark our bush because someone else left him a little gift. That is annoying. What do you do about that? So it's annoying when other dogs do it to our house, but you don't feel other homeowners should be annoyed by our dogs starting the marking process? Our dogs are different. They are. They're special. And this is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. The animals. 